Hey listeners, if you've been paying attention to entertainment news, you probably know there's been some recent revelations about Joss Whedon. We recorded this episode before the news broke, so that's the main reason why we don't discuss it. Additionally, we think that regardless of Joss's personal character, the work he did on Buffy, in collaboration with hundreds of other people, still has incredible merit as a text independent from the author. There's a worthy discussion to be had about Joss specifically and about when and how to separate art from the artist that made it more generally, but we want to keep the focus of this episode on Buffy itself. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Hallowed Ground Storycast. I'm Anya. And I'm Alan, and this episode is about the awesome power of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She's got it, and she knows how to use it. Buffy the Vampire Slayer was a television show created by Joss Whedon. The TV show is adapted from a movie that Joss originally wrote and was uh, produced by other people who didn't exactly do it to his liking, (laughs) and so he wanted a chance to really tell the story the way he wanted it to be told. It ran seven seasons from 1997 to 2003, including 144 episodes. Co-executive producers over that span include Jane Espenson, David Fury, David Greenwald, Doug Petrie, Marty Noxon, and David Solomon. And so if you're at all interested in genre television today, that is a list of names with people who you recognize. Um, So Buffy really... I think created a whole generation of creatives that went on to do other things. Buffy didn't win very many awards, but it is consistently named on lists of the best TV shows of all time. And I think the general reaction to the 20th anniversary that happened a few months ago, I think really goes to show how much this TV show is still in people's hearts. It has such an important place in the history of television too and like its academic presence and sort of the the history of tv becoming less episodic and more serialized buffy plays a really important role in that i think the the main shows that people always cite when talking about that is sort of like x files which predated buffy a little bit um, and started doing some serialization but was still mostly episodic and then buffy came along and sort of like really started out, I think, in more of an X-Files mode and then really transitioned to much more serialized storytelling, which is sort of the standard for for what we see in shows today. Yeah. And also on the production side, in terms of its importance, it was on, you know, like an upstart cable network. And there was not any guarantee that that kind of strategy was going to work on television. The conventional wisdom of the late 90s was that your show should be on NBC, ABC or CBS to be important. And so they were on this really upstart network that was a uh, nothing. And Buffy kind of really carried that network into prominence. I don't think that you get things like The Walking Dead later without Buffy the Vampire Slayer is basically what I'm saying, where you have these cable networks 
that don't necessarily have the production history of the three main networks. And they produce these genre shows that have a lot of prestige and acclaim. That just doesn't happen without Buffy. (laughs) And we want to give everybody a heads up about the first, the way that we're going to structure this episode. And also the fact that even though Buffy the Vampire Slayer is a lot of fun and is, you know, sounds like kind of a goofy thing, even in its title, there are a lot of um, adult themes that we're going to be discussing with like murder and even rape is going to come up. So don't listen to this episode with anybody that you would not want to have a discussion about those things with. And in terms of the spoilers for the show, we've structured this episode in two parts. First, we're going to be talking about seasons one through four. And I would say that for those seasons, the spoilers in terms of the overall story, the serialized story of Buffy the Vampire Slayer are not the best plot twists in the show. And so that's kind of why we're going to talk about that first. And then, well, it's, I mean, it's not that the plot's not good. It's just that knowing the spoilers doesn't influence your experience of the story in a bad way. They're not crazy, like the stuff that happens later where you're like, I can't, this is blowing my mind. I can't believe it. So if you've never watched Buffy, stick around through, through the first part. And then if you're interested in Buffy, you could pause the episode, take a couple months off watch all of Buffy and then come back and and listen to the rest of the episode, I guess. So we realize this is the first real episode of Hallowed Ground story cast. So you don't really know how this works yet. And we don't really know how this works yet. Oh, no, um, we totally know how this works. This We're not <laughs> by the seat of our pants at all. This is... We want to start each episode by talking about sort of our first experience with the story that we're talking about. So, Alan, tell me about your first experience with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and then sort of your experiences through time. Like, how many times have you rewatched it? That kind of thing. Okay, so I came to Buffy in two parts. When I was in high school, my girlfriend uh, around like my junior and senior year was a Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan. She's like, you, this show is so your thing, like you're into science fiction and fantasy and you love vampire movies and horror movies and stuff, you really need to watch this show. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I saw that movie and I really don't need to watch that show. And she's like, no, you need to watch this show. We would hang out at her house and we would watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer um, on this show on our Hollowed Ground Storycast, I'm going to be really honest about my experiences and stuff. And hopefully people are not like, wow, this guy is a real jerk. But this was like my initial reaction to Buffy the Vampire Slayer as a show. Like I, I think I came in near the end of the first season watching it with her. And she had seen every episode up to that point. And I was like, who is this Xander and this... Uh, <laughs> in this willow like these they weren't in the movie what's going on uh so it was a little bit confusing and also my approach to it was kind of i was like okay there's like the shows hercules and xena right there's like the boy show and the girl show and this was like a girl's show and i would i watched the show and i was like okay so like all the bad guys are men like the master in the first season is a guy 
and he's the bad guy. And and there's one boy on this team, Xander, and he's goofy and dumb and has no powers and he's not useful for anything. And uh, like, I get it. Like, it's a girl power thing. The girls are good. The boys are bad. Like, okay. And I was not very into the show until I went to college and got into the third season and Faith showed up. And that was much more interesting to me because she had all the same abilities as Buffy, but she was evil. And I was like, oh, okay. So this is not about girls are good and boys are bad, where I felt like the audience was exclusively for women. That's how I felt about it at the time. I wasn't sophisticated enough to understand like what was going on with Angel and Angelus. And I'm making a lot of excuses for like my my teenage <laughs> self. I was a little asshole, a little judgmental asshole is what I'm saying. But Faith like changed all of that for me. She was this very interesting, damaged character that gave me a way into the show and made me realize the show is like all about power and how we use it and that the actions that we take are really what define us. And it was all just much more interesting to me once Faith showed up. I continued to watch the show after my relationship with that um, woman ended But when the fourth season got into its thing and I was in college and I had a full-time job, like the fourth season didn't really hold on to me and I fell away from the show for many years. And actually, it was only after the show was over that I was um, living with my roommate at the time and a really good friend, Nick, um, who has a podcast called Dork, spelled with um, a Q-U-E at the end. I'll put a link in the show notes. Okay, so he was at his job and uh, met a woman there, a co-worker, and was very interested in dating this woman. And they had a lot of things in common, and um, she's really pretty and smart and everything. And she, But she told him, she said, I will not date you. I will not even talk to you about any kind of romantic thing unless you watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer. He had never... He never watched Buffy. (laughs) And he came to me and he was like, I don't know about this girl. Like, I'm really interested in her and everything. But she says I have to watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And that's that's a stupid show, right? And I was like, well, not really. Like, I watched it and it's pretty good. I don't know. Like, the I stopped watching it. The fourth season's kind of (laughs) stupid. So, but he really was he really wanted to date this girl. And so he went out and bought all of the DVDs because the show had just ended. And wow, that's quite the financial investment back you know, then. He was he was pretty smitten. I think it was it was a done <laughs> deal. He was going to watch this show, but he watched it. He was mainlining the show like every night. He'd watch like three or four episodes, and so it was kind of fun to have it on in the background. And I was like, oh yeah, I remember this. I remember that. And by that time, I had learned more about story. I had grown up a little bit more. I I was still like an asshole, but I wasn't as much of an asshole. I really enjoyed watching the show again, like along with him every once in a while. But I wasn't totally tuned into it. Like when the fourth season rolled around, I was like, oh, whatever. I'm going to do some work in my room. 
And it wasn't until it got to an episode that we're going to talk about later in the second section called The Body that I was like, oh, this show is serious, serious business. And I have completely misunderstood everything about what this show is. And then I went back, like went to the first DVD and watched it all myself with a really critical eye and watched it closely and needed to understand everything about it and watched everything all the way to the end. It was like completely life-changing to me, like in terms of understanding what story is and you know, what you could do with serialized storytelling. It really happened because he wanted to date that girl who, by the way, he ended up marrying. So it worked out. And I was in their wedding and it was my job in the wedding to hold the chihuahua that had a little tuxedo on, who was a dog <laughs> when we lived together. Like, she walked down to um, the Darth Vader music. Wait, wait, wait. The Imperial March yes. theme? She walked down the aisle yeah. to that? This is the movie's <laughs> wedding. It was so cool. Um, I love oh. those guys. Uh, Nick and Carol. Wonderful, wonderful people. And and big dorks. She is, she is a huge, huge Buffy fan. Yep. Changed my life because she loved Buffy. You know, that's so funny. I feel like Buffy is one of the few shows that maybe it's just the people who I know, but it comes up over and over again where it's like a relationship deal breaker (laughs) (laughs) in a way that most TV shows aren't. It's like... You you don't like Buffy? Like, what kind of person are you? We cannot... This this needs to end right now. Even like, you don't necessarily have to love it as much as I do, but you have to know it enough to understand it. Right. On some level. So so how did you find Buffy? So I discovered Buffy my senior year of college, and I would say probably had a direct negative impact on the quality of my honors thesis. Um, (laughs) Tried to watch all seven seasons in one year while taking a a full course load and doing a a double major thesis. (laughs) But um, so I had lived with uh, a friend of mine my junior year who was an epic poetry major in college. So he did the whole, like, design your own major thing. Um, And he was really interested in sort of, like, big epic storytelling and looking at that through time. Um, So sort of, like, starting with the Greeks and then into the Romans and then into... Uh, more medieval epics and even like modern conceptions of epic. And so um, he felt like he had to create his own major basically because the neither the classics department nor the English department were really like equipped to handle what he wanted to do alone. He needed to sort of combine them. That's cool. Um, and so the summer between our junior and senior years, he went off to ancient Greek boot camp because, you know, got to be able to to read the epics in their original ancient Greek. He came back our senior year when we were living together again, and he was like, hey, how's it going? How's your summer? You need to watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Apparently, at ancient Greek boot camp was also a little bit like Buffy boot camp. They would sort of like, every morning they would like wake up, go to class for a few hours, like work on their homework assignments for a few hours 
and then just like watch four to five episodes of Buffy and then go to bed. And that was what they did every single day for like two months. (laughs) So I spent my senior year of college basically like waking up, going to class, going to the lab, doing my research, coming home, doing homework, and then just watching Buffy and Angel. (laughs) And I mean, it totally changed my life. Obviously, I would say that, you know, I wasn't unnerdy before I was into Buffy. I mean, like, clearly the people who I'm hanging out with are going off to ancient Greek boot camp for the summer. (laughs) That's nerdy. Um, But I was never really into nerd culture and nerd fandom before Buffy. Comics and superheroes never really spoke to me before Buffy. Mm -hmm. So unlike you... I would say I was fully bought into Buffy from the moment that I started watching because there was this person who I really trusted whose, like, entire motivation for existence is basically, like, studying epic narrative, telling me that I need to watch this show. And as I was going through it, you know, we were sort of talking about everything and freaking out over all the things that I can't discuss until we get to the second (laughs) half of this episode... Um, so after that, I've rewatched it fully twice, and I've listened to several podcasts where I haven't been rewatching along with the podcast, but I feel like it almost counts as like half a rewatch because you're sort of like reliving the experience of the episode and, and like really thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so as far as how Buffy has influenced my life. I think Buffy really taught me to appreciate the power of story in general. Like English and literature analysis has always been my worst school subject. I mean, like I'm a fast reader and I'm really good at reading and reading comprehension. But as far as like analysis and metaphor and all of that, I never really was good at it or appreciated it or practiced it at all Mm -hmm. until Buffy. And now it's like one of my favorite things to do. (laughs) Obviously, (laughs) you and I met on um, Buffy forums. And so our friendship and our American Gods podcast would not exist without Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah. And I was an English major. So it's kind of the opposite. Like I was trained to think in a fuzzy, fuzzy, fuzzy way and like look at metaphor and conflate things and all this stuff. And so like, that's what I saw in Buffy when I did that, you know, rewatch with the DVDs, very close watching. I was like, Oh, it's all here. Like these monsters are metaphors for the emotional experience of these characters. Like, which should, I don't know. Like, now when I rewatch it, I'm like, what a little asshole I was when I was a kid where I was like, this show is dumb and for girls. And like, clearly that this is exceptionally good writing from the first episode. Like when you hit the ground running, when we met on that forum, like the very deep reading that was going on in the associated podcast was even more illuminating. I was like, oh, this is even better than I ever understood. (laughs) And there's a lot here. And the discussions that all those people had and that you and I had with each other, like you're seeing all kinds of things that that I had never even thought about in there. 
And then I was coming at it from all of these, like, this is how it hooks up to religion and to Marvel comics and, you know, all these other things that I'm interested in. It's so cool to talk about the show with, like, really smart people who have diverse interests And it shows just how good the writing is because you can come at it from a million different angles and people can find things that are really there that um, you wouldn't be able to see without the experience of those other people. I totally agree with everything you just said, except for the word fuzzy. (laughs) I feel like, I mean, if you're doing story analysis right, there's actually nothing fuzzy about it. I mean, like... (laughs) I think... I have a little bit of a cynical view about um, the teaching of uh, like English departments and stuff, but I feel like they kind of, when you get there, um, okay, so like when you get your raw recruit English major and they're like, I'm here to like, what is the truth of this book? And the, and the English teacher has to be like, there's not like, the book does not equal this. Like it is about your experience and you like, you have to slow your roll a little bit and not be like the glasses do not equal God. That is like a way to see it. It's not the way to see uh, it. Okay. But just because something is subjective doesn't mean it's fuzzy. I don't know. I think of the word fuzzy as meaning like not well thought out, mm-hmm. like not uh, making sense, not being clear. Something can be clear without being a universal truth and while still being subjective. This might be my favorite conversation that I've ever had with you, where you are defending (laughs) the thinking of English majors to me. I'm so delighted by this. This is fantastic. I don't know. I mean, well, because like what I do for my job is like critique fuzzy scientific Mm -hmm. argument. And I think, you know, like there's definitely differences between scientific argument, humanities argument, but things can still be clear and fuzzy. I don't know. You're totally right. That subjective does not mean like, um, bullshit. (laughs) It's not fake or or anything like that. Subjective truth is just a way of thinking. There's all these English major insecurities when I'm talking to a PhD scientist where you're like, you handle raw objective truth as your job. And so I'm like, yeah, we're so flighty and like emotional. Science is way less clear cut than I think the layperson perceives it generally. Like, Mm -hmm. there are multiple ways to interpret data. Sometimes the most straightforward interpretation is the wrong interpretation. I'm conflicted about the way that science is often portrayed in sort of like common culture and media, right? Because on the one hand, like, yes, we should fucking trust scientists about the fact that there's a 99% consensus about global climate change. But when you get down into, like, the smaller level, there's, like, so much uncertainty in science, and there is a lot of leeway in the ways that people interpret things differently. Science is not a clear objective truth most of the time. It's figuring out how to interpret potentially ambiguous information a lot of the time. Both of them are a way of thinking. Like you need to learn how to think to be a scientist and you need to learn how to think to analyze story. You can't come to story and be like, like I said, this equals that. It's not like that. 
you you have to understand you just have to think in a different way and it's the same thing you're saying for science that it's not a matter of memorizing a list of objective truths it's a way of inve- investigating information so back to buffy <laughs> right so my name is not anya anya is the pseudonym that i use for this cuz i'm just trying to keep my professional life and my fan lives separate yeah so anya's line in one of the season six episodes i forget which one where she's pretending to be willow making fun of herself and she's like that anya she's newly human and strangely literal like i don't like her (laughs) um so that's where my name comes from strangely literal um so why anya for me You know, I totally understand why Anya can irritate some people, because in the hands of the Buffy writers, who I think didn't really understand her character and get her, she really is, as Lonnie likes to call her, a comedy mule. She tells the joke that wouldn't fit in anybody else's mouth. But I think in the hands of a skilled writer who really understands her, Anya is at her most interesting, and I identify with her the most, when it's not that she's just talking about sex or doesn't understand, like, human emotions. Because, like, Anya's not a robot. She understands emotions. She was a vengeance demon for hundreds of years. Like, she understands what makes humans tick, and she has a lot of empathy. What Anya doesn't understand is social constructions that actually aren't based on, like, empathy or emotion or what makes sense. They're just sort of, like, random social conventions. Yeah. And that is something that I identify with a lot. I think I'm pretty smart, and I think I'm pretty empathetic. I'm pretty in touch with my emotions. But I do find social situations sometimes to be hard to navigate because I really don't understand the rules. I feel like I should come up with some specific examples, but none are coming to mind right now other than the like really heartbreaking scene in the body. Oh, man. How she doesn't know what to do in that situation. And yeah, like sometimes I do just feel like a little bit out of step with the social conventions that don't make sense to me and I don't really agree with. And that's like a reputation that I have in a lot of my friend groups as being the one who's sort of like overly blunt and saying whatever's on my mind. And when she's well-written, I adore the shit out of her. And when she's poorly written, I just ignore it and pretend it's not there. (laughs) (laughs) You are strangely literal at times, too. Like, I will say a thing and you'll be like, really? And I'll be like, no, not really. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm also like, I'm very earnest. And a lot of times I will take people at face value if that's what they're showing me I think maybe part of that comes from the fact that that's how I am like if I'm feeling something I'll say what I'm feeling if I'm thinking something I'll say what I'm thinking which is actually another reason why I love Cordelia she's like but I was yep, I know I was gonna say that really that's what Anya does in a way is replace Cordelia because like once she goes over to the show Angel then Anya fills in that role of being the person in the room who will say the thing that should not be said but must She just does it in a completely different way. Like Cordelia is very entitled and like, I'm going to say whatever the fuck I want and you can deal with it. And Anya's like, I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to say that. Yeah, that's actually another one of my favorite moments in Buffy is an earshot when uh, Buffy can read everyone's mind. And it goes like, you know, through all of the Scoobies and they're all like thinking one thing and saying something else. And then it gets to Cordelia and she just like thinks something and then says that exact thing out loud. And it's just like, so perfect. (laughs) 
Um, uh, so those are our stories about how we experienced Buffy the Vampire Slayer and how it influenced our lives. And stay tuned um, because we solicited submissions from our listeners to tell their stories about how they experienced Buffy the Vampire Slayer and how it has influenced their lives. And we got some really awesome submissions, including some from some of our favorite podcasters and vloggers who talk about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. We have a submission from Lonnie Diane Rich, the host of Still Pretty. Um, We have something from the host of Prophecy Guys and from a lot of listeners. Um, So stay tuned for that. These stories are really awesome. And now we are going to talk in depth about seasons one through four. Like we said earlier, there will be spoilers for these seasons. So I think we should talk a little bit about the concept that's really at the core of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is that you have this cute blonde girl who goes into the dark alley with a guy you think is the scary monster and then it turns out that he's the one in danger and she kicks his ass so sort of turning the typical horror movie trope on its head yep the victim is the victor um and it's kind of a genre mashup of horror like you said there and then the superhero genre where Buffy really exhibits a lot of um, typical superhero qualities where not only in terms of her power set, where she's extremely strong and agile and has all of these supernatural abilities, but just in general, the way that the story is structured is superhero. And then the setting and all of the kind of tropes of horror influence the story. So I think this as the foundation of the show really explains a lot of its uh, more general sort of like genre awareness and kind of like the playful way that it combines and subverts genres. I think that's like one of my favorite things about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's almost never just one thing, right? Like even in episodes that are really about moving you and evoking, you know, like deep sadness as their main emotion. Like there are hilarious, funny moments throughout. And Buffy, I think, really refuses to be defined as one thing. And I love how different episodes sort of like take on different genres. Like there are a lot of more funny episodes or more dramatic episodes or horror episodes. It definitely has a fluid tone and style that is really unique. I I feel like it's um, more common now and probably because of the influence of the show. But at the time, there was nothing on TV that was like that. You'd have like a super serious drama like ER that might have like one funny moment in an episode or something like that. But it switches from scary to funny in a moment in a line or and then we'll switch into something that will make you cry right after that Uh, and it does it with a lot of ease that you know comes from i think joss whedon's writing you can kind of take it for granted when you watch the show but it's not 
easy to do and it's not necessarily anything that he was like, oh, I'm going to do it like this other guy did it. Like it's kind of something he did. And then so I think the other really central idea at the core of Buffy is the idea of monsters and the supernatural as metaphors um, for life's trials and tribulations. In particular, early on, there's a lot of single episodes that kind of tackle single subjects that way. In the show on the whole, until like the end of the third season, I think the high concept for the show is high school is hell. And what if that was literally true? Like, what if hell was literally leaking into the high school and the local bully wasn't just a bully, he is a monster? So what are your favorite monsters as metaphor episodes? Um, So there's the one where the frat boys are like worshiping some kind of like snake demon or something. Um, Reptile boy? Yeah, reptile boy. And they... They have to sacrifice a, a girl to it and um, feed it so that they can <laughs> so so they can be like the patriarchal assholes that they are into the future. I've always you know I've always thought in that episode too like in terms of the macro story like it's not too long after that that Cordelia's family goes broke mm-hmm. and I always kind of thought that maybe when Buffy kills the demon serpent that like makes all of those white assholes rich that it wrecked Cordelia's family because like oh like her dad was one of those dudes and because he had gotten his uh wealth by supernatural means he lost it by the same and it like wiped them out and then after that she like hangs out with the poor kids and can't afford a prom dress and all this stuff oh i love that i don't think that's canon but like (laughs) that's my canon but i like that metaphor of people are just tools to be used like we're gonna kill a girl so that we can be rich what's your monster metaphor that speaks to you you know honestly the sort of like single episode monster metaphors are not really my favorite thing about Buffy. The thing that I really go to Buffy for is the long form storytelling. But I did really like Out of Sight, Out of Mind. Mm-hmm. Um, or Out of Mind, Out of Sight. Yeah, <laughs> whatever. The one with, with the invisible girl. And of course, I love Helpless, the one where Giles takes away Buffy's power as part of this ritual um, on her 18th birthday and then she has to find a way to beat the vampires even though she doesn't have any of her slayer strength um just using her her like wits and cleverness and i feel like it's such a powerful metaphor for the way that those who have power like institutional structural power in society take away the uh inherent strength in those around them so that they can maintain that power. That's a great read of that. I love that. And it's just like such an emotional gut punch. I love the relationship between Giles and Buffy, the the Watcher and the Slayer. And that episode is is just so key for that. Oh, that's a big turning point too. Because after that point, like Giles questions, not just his role as her watcher, but like, what am I doing being a part of this organization that does this to this person that I care about? Yeah. And then I think sort of like, on a larger scale, right, Buffy is saying, you know, like, 
question institutions. We're sort of introduced mm-hmm. to the council as a big benevolent organization that has the good of the world at heart. And then as the series goes on, the council is painted in a more and more problematic light. And as, you know, a patriarchal institution, mostly interested in sort of upholding itself rather than actually empowering people and producing the most good for the most people, Um, which is, of course, such an important lesson. Yeah, that's a big theme in all of Joss's work, I think, that role of power and institution. And uh, yeah, Helpless is a really good example of that. The other one that I wanted to talk about, I feel like is less weighty <laughs> than that, but <laughs> but is more fun um, and has always spoken to me from the first time that I saw it was the episode Band Candy, where everybody kind of goes crazy. I'm trying to remember the exact logistics of how band candy works. Like they eat the cursed candy, but why does everybody? Um... Yeah, that. Um, so, Mister Trick and the Mayor are trying to steal babies from the hospital, oh, right. so That's right. they can eat them. <laughs> I always forget that, and so they need, <laughs> they need the adults of the town to not really be paying attention, so they feed them candy that makes them act like irresponsible teenagers. Right. I always forget the the baby eating part. I feel like I'm revealing way too much about my encyclopedic knowledge of Buffy the Vampire right now. No, uh, that's great. Um, right. This is like the same thing that makes me really good at memorizing enzyme pathways always also makes me really good at remembering the minor plot points of random episodes. I feel like it should not be minor that babies were being eaten in that episode. Like that that should not be a detail that that falls out of my mind, but it um but it totally does every time I think about that episode. What connects with me about that episode is the like the infantile behavior of all the uh, all the adults. Growing up in my household, uh, my parents were divorced when I was very young, and um, my dad took custody of me and my brother, and then I had a stepsister growing up, and I was the oldest, and I really felt in that household like a co-parent. Like I would have to feed my brother and sister all the time and make sure that they were clean and had that they took care of their clothes and folded their laundry because really nobody was doing that stuff. Like I, if I did not do it, it wouldn't happen. And that's kind of like what is going on in that episode. The Scoobies have to step up and um, take care of the problem because previously to that, it was always like Giles would find in some dusty old book, it'd be like, oh, here's the formula to destroy the monster and here's the plan and we're going to you know, deploy these characters in, in the different way to execute the plan. And the kids had to come up with the plan in that one. And I was like, yes, that's like, this speaks to my experience growing up. And also like another thing in that episode that struck me, like I said before, that I was this um, teenage boy asshole was the scene with Joyce and Giles where he's like playing records for her and she desperately, desperately wants his attention. And he is like, it just ignores her and just wants to listen to music and smoke like the way he's treating her is the way that you hang out with your guy friends with no women around he's not treating her right and she doesn't know how to act with him she's so like worshipful and like (laughs) undignified and and i was like oh like 
Boys and girls are raised separately, and that's bad, and we treat each other badly and misunderstand each other. I've never thought of that before watching this episode of television. Wow. I was really (laughs) clueless, the last hole, but but it's always spoken to me, that part. Yeah, I like that. So I think the big metaphor from early Buffy that we have to talk about, though, is not a single episode. It's the big arc of season two which is the the angel and jealous storyline. Mm. And so the key metaphor there, right, is that you meet this guy, you think you're into each other, you're hanging out, you sleep together, and then he becomes somebody else completely, just like a giant asshole. Yep. And you're sort of left wondering, like, what the hell just happened? And that episode, I feel like, is so unique in television in the way that it treats Buffy. And maybe, I don't know, maybe we don't agree on this, but but I feel like she's not judged for having the sex. It's just that he was a bad person and this happened to her. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, and I think Buffy's definitely afraid that people will judge her for having had sex, yes. but the show itself is not doing that. I mean, her mom kind of freaks out on her about it, but Giles is there to tell her and to affirm to her, like, this isn't your fault. You didn't do this. You didn't do anything. And that's huge. Like, because this show is really targeted to teenage girls. I don't think that anybody was saying that to teenage girls in the 90s. There was a lot of fear around sex because of the HIV crisis and AIDS. And so the message, especially I feel like to teenage girls was abstinence is the only correct method of like birth control. And if you have sex, you're a terrible, terrible person. And there was not anything on television or like anywhere that was targeted directly at teenage girls that says, yeah, if you have sex, you're not a terrible person. And you know what? If the guy treats you bad, that's on the guy. Like that is a really progressive message that this show had at a time when that was completely out of step with the wider culture to like to its credit yeah I, you know i really appreciate the angel and jealous storyline and i think it's really great storytelling it's not something that i particularly relate to a lot on a personal level i think because those were never messages that i got like my parents were super progressive as far as the way that they talked to me about my sexuality. Like, they got me a lock on my bedroom door as my 16th birthday present. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like, I never had those messages that, that, like, sex was wrong or bad. And I never had an experience where a guy really turned on me after we had sex. Good. So I know, I know, like, this storyline in particular is a lot of people's favorite part of Buffy and it really speaks to them and for me I get it and I cry at the end of becoming part two just like any other person with a heart yeah but um (laughs) yes yeah (laughs) it doesn't it doesn't speak to me that much as far as like my personal experiences and I guess just to be a little bit critical like So I totally buy the story and I'm invested as soon as, like, Angel turns into Angelus. 
But I feel like Buffy and Angel's relationship up until that point is super informed and kind of superficial. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons why the story resonates less with me than it does maybe with some people is because I was never really invested in the Buffy-Angel relationship before he turned evil. Mm Mm-hmm, totally. Because he basically, you know, he just kind of shows up, whispers some cryptic things, and is very mysterious, but, like, they don't have a working partnership or a working relationship, and that is what really makes me buy into a romance. And Angel is, like, a terrible character, in my opinion, uh, for season <laughs> season one, he's super boring. I I don't like Angel very much in general, but I think he's like very poorly used uh, until the Angelus storyline, and then I'm like, oh, Angelus is awesome. He's yeah. so great, and then it's so heartbreaking uh, when he turns back into Angel, and all of that other stuff is pretty good uh, that comes yeah. after. That. Well, and I think part of it too was just David Boreanaz learning how to act. Yeah, because. Buffy was his first gig and like he you know it takes a while to get good at something practice makes perfect so I think through the process of of being angelus it made him a much better angel yeah and I think he is a good actor like once like you said once he gets his sea legs um he's really good he's not given very much to do in the writing either. And who knows if that's because they were like, well, he's not capable of much, Alan, so stop criticizing us. But his whole situation was not great until the Angelus stuff. I like Angelus a lot more than Angel. Not that I like Angelus being cruel or whatever, but I enjoy it more than Angel being like, oh, I'm so, I was so bad once upon a time and I feel bad about it, you guys. I really feel bad. <laughs> it's like, it's not interesting. Um, So another thing that I wanted to discuss for this early section of Buffy, talking about the Buffy big bad villains and sort of the way that it plays with villain tropes. So one of the things that Buffy really likes to do is do this sort of mid-season villain switcheroo. You start out thinking that the villain is one entity, and then a little bit after the midway point, that person ends up getting replaced by another villain, which is a a sort of like interesting and fun way to structure seasons. And then also Buffy a lot of times has villains that are unconventional in some way or sort of like play with different villain tropes in interesting ways. Who's your favorite villain in the first four seasons? I mean, definitely the mayor. He's just, like, so creepy. Yeah. I I love the way he's just, like, saccharine and wholesome and good as, like, a very thin but compelling veneer on top of this just, like, such malicious evil. And the, the sort of juxtaposition of those two things is so interesting and compelling to watch. Yeah, the way that he's got like that whole Boy Scout kind of feel to him. And like, like I was saying earlier with the sexual education, like he's a character who would be a good character in any other show, like the way that he presents the way that he's coded. And then for that to be coded as 
the most evil is so subversive and just excellent. I yeah, I love to hate the mayor. The mayor is so creepy and and evil and wrong. Him and Faith is probably my favorite thing in the whole show. The way he twists her up and manipulates her. It's so like very healthy in one way and very very evil and dark weirdly like abusive and exploitative in both of them the use of power like i just love all that stuff it's so good the thing that really makes me love the mayor faith storyline is actually in season four when she wakes up from the coma and we see the the video that he recorded for her before the season finale of season three Mm -hmm. And watching her react to that, and it's just, uh, it's so complicated and crunchy, right? Because, like, he's awful, he's evil, but, you know, we have sympathy for Faith as the character, and Faith loves him on some level. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's it's kind of weird that even though he was evil and the Scoobies are supposed to be a force for good based on on where Faith ended up, he was actually the person to give her strength and believe in her and build her up in a way that the Scoobies never could. Exactly. Or chose not to. And so it's just like, it's kind of a mind fuck, but kind of amazing. Yeah, it's complicated in a way that it doesn't need to be and makes it so much deeper and interesting. Like the dynamic between an abused child and their abuser And that there really is like a twisted love there. It was like, that was my in to Faith. That's why Faith is my favorite character. It was like, I had like a troubled childhood and especially a bad relationship with my father. Like I just, I tap into Faith where she just makes all these bad choices. And it's so clear that she has no one. Like when she gets to Sunnydale in season three, she's living in a hotel and none of the other Scoobies are like, hey, come live in my house with me. They're like, boy, that girl is trouble. She's so isolated by them when they're supposed to be the heroic characters. Nobody takes care of her. Nobody reaches out to her except for the mayor. And he, he gives her a place to live. He gives her like the clothes and the weapons and is there for her in a real way, in a way that she actually needs and like is emotionally supportive, except that he's doing all of it to exploit her strength and her capability, you know, twist her destiny into an evil thing instead of a force for good. And uh, it's so it's so good. It's so excellent. Yeah. And that's that's particularly interesting in light of the fact that like one of the other main themes of Buffy is this idea of found family and that the Scoobies are a found family mm-hmm. and that they somehow made a choice not to r- fully invite Faith into that family. She's like that black sheep of the family. She doesn't fit in and and her and Buffy are like oil and water. Like they just... They never, they can never mesh. They can never work together really well. So one of my other favorite things about Buffy is the really fun sort of bizarro world episodes is what Lonnie calls them, Mm -hmm. where um, we sort of take the time to explore very different, vaguely sort of like parallel universe version of the worlds. So I think some of the key examples of this are like, the Wish, where we have Anya come in and and actually... Who comes in? 
What? what? Uh, who's that? What? Uh, what? <laughs> and 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 literally create an alternate reality. That's a great episode. There's the Zeppo that's super deep into Xander's perspective. Um, we have the musical episode in season six, which I love it where like the musicalness is actually explained in like a plot relevant way, which is so cool. Um, we have like episodes where everyone's memory gets wiped and they're sort of, you know, acting out as yeah. similar but different <laughs> versions of themselves. We have the like normal again where, you know, is everything all a delusion? Does none of this actually exist? Um, are there any other good Bizarro World episodes that I'm missing? Oh, the Jonathan one? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Superstar is one of yeah. my favorite Bizarro World episodes. And for both Superstar and Once More with Feeling, when they, like, redo the title sequences, like, oh, I love That's that shit. That's the best. Yeah, I love that. That's when you really get me because that's very nerdy, right? Like only only real fans would be like, wait, the intro is different. What does this mean? (laughs) This changes everything. Like you really notice that. Yeah. I love the way that it breaks the rules. And that's my favorite thing about Joss Whedon's stuff. It only works too with this serialized storytelling, I think, where we really understand these characters and where they're at. And a lot of those... Bizarro World episodes are turning points for different characters. Like, I really feel like the Zeppo is where Xander comes into his place in the group. Like, he kind of gets over his insecurities in an important way and steps into the role of being the heart in the family. That doesn't happen without the Zeppo. Usually, something like this might be more inessential or fun. Like, you watch a lot of other shows and they'll have a musical episode and it doesn't matter very much. It's just kind of like, oh, that was cute. But in Buffy, those are some of the most important episodes. Yeah, I totally agree. So I'm curious how you feel about The Master, the big bad from season one, because, you know, I think for a lot of people, probably most people, season one is that season that you kind of just have to get through. (laughs) Um, and there's there's some good moments and character development that happens that makes what come later resonate better. But overall, like none of those episodes are your favorite and there are a lot of bad ones. I've never been a huge fan of The Master. But last year, I went to a drag show version of Buffy season one. What? And yeah, it's San Francisco. Don't ask. Um, no, I <laughs> don't want- ask questions. Just, <laughs> just go. <laughs> this sounds amazing. What are you talking about? It was no. It was really amazing, but it it totally gave me an appreciation for season one and particularly the master that I think I didn't have before. And maybe part of that is just that you know drag style is so campy. Mm-hmm. And Buffy season one is so campy in a way that the rest of the show sort of is not. When you combine those two things together, along with all the penis jokes, it just like (laughs) something magical happens. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I do like the master. Like whenever I go back and watch season one, I actually I really love that performance. And we talked earlier about the way that the show switches from humor to horror and all that stuff and the master he really is the master of that like he gives these like dramatic comic book villain speeches and then he's like was that okay you think you think that worked was that all right and it it plays (laughs) 
in a way that is not the camp and the cheese is not too heavy for the scene and the actor like really pulls it off. There's lots of stuff to like about the master. I always like anytime the master comes back because he does recur over and over. It's always a treat. I'm trying to think if he follows that trope of the mid-season, but I guess since it's only half a season to begin with. Yeah, yeah, I don't think that one really does. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, season two onward that do that. And I guess we already talked a bit about Angelus. We'll just pretend that season four had no big bad. <laughs> um. I don't know, like season four, I like the concept. And I think that it's actually executed really, really well in Cabin in the Woods, which is also like a Joss Whedon joint. And it's basically the same story, right? The monsters, it's like the sci-fi and supernatural mashup. I think it works really well in Cabin in the Woods and doesn't work for Buffy for whatever reason. And then there's, you know, there's Riley and there's Riley. (laughs) (laughs) I was hoping we could just avoid all of that. <laughs> We're like talking about seven seasons in such a short I amount know. of time. We can just only focus on the positive. We have to acknowledge that like there were problems, and <laughs> but we got past them. So I wanted to talk a little bit about female empowerment and then also Buffy's character arc in season one. And so one of the things that I've been thinking about sort of leading up to recording this episode and in the context of the the Wonder Woman movie that came out recently, there's been a lot of criticism of the Wonder Woman movie, but there's also been a lot of people who reacted really strongly to it in the way where where people say, is this what men feel like all the time. Like, I'm a woman and I came out of the Wonder Woman movie feeling like I could do anything and empowered in a way that I've never felt before because I'm watching someone who I can really identify with save the world Mm. and, like, be the hero in a way that normally you just get to see men in these roles. You know, like, I never really thought about why Buffy resonated with me so much, but I I wonder if there's an element of that to it. I mean, I always knew that Buffy was, at its core, a feminist text, asterisk, problems, whatever. (laughs) Um, And I consider myself a feminist, and I enjoy the text, but I never really considered that the reason why I liked it was because... I found it so empowering to watch a woman kick ass. And like, it seems weird that that never occurred to me. (laughs) But like, if you had asked me earlier, like before Wonder Woman, why I like Buffy, I would have said like, oh, it's the storylines and the character arcs and, and the long form storytelling. And like, intellectually, I think that's what I really appreciate about Buffy. And just in light of Wonder Woman, I'm thinking more about if there was a more emotional reason that I wasn't even like fully aware of. Yeah, obviously, I can't speak to that. But I do have two young daughters. And I've noticed that as I try to expose them to different pop culture, like I've tried to get them into Star Wars, which is something that I really, really love. Uh, And they're like, this is such a dad movie. Jesus Christ, when is this gonna be over? (laughs) And... There's the show, um, the CW show, Supergirl, and uh, I really enjoy that show. And whenever I watch that, my oldest daughter, who's, you know, blonde haired, blue eyed, and looks kind of like the protagonist, will always stop whatever she's doing and watch that show and is really emotionally plugged into it. 
And I don't think that Supergirl and Star Wars are like a universe apart or anything. Like they're very kind of similar with their action beats and their message and just all that stuff. But the big difference is that it's a female lead and it's really like centered around the fact of her womanhood in a way that, you know, Star Wars is not... It's just all boys and she can plug into it in a a way that I really notice. And I'm like, oh, this is important that there are stories like this out there for my daughters to see and for them to connect with. It really matters. Yeah, I totally agree. So in addition to just sort of the symbol of Buffy as unempowered woman kicking ass, she actually goes through quite a bit of an arc in these first four seasons. In season one, she's very resistant. She is sort of running away from her Slayer identity. And then slowly, over the course of the series, she really comes to accept and embrace her Slayer identity and her responsibility and duty towards the world and it comes to mean different things to her at different points and it's like impossible i think to even really try and synthesize that journey into something that can be talked about in the scope of an episode like this yeah but it's one of the things that i really appreciate and love about the show and find super crunchy and interesting Yeah, I think that's kind of what the whole story is about in a way of her growing up and transitioning through those different, you know, like you resent your responsibility and then it becomes a part of your identity. And then in adulthood, it becomes even more complicated when you start to compartmentalize your responsibilities and your desires and your identity But one of the things that this show does that is related to that and that I really appreciate and is kind of tied into the serialized element of the of the story is that none of the characters are ever static in who they are. Okay, so in a typical television show, let's say like Gilligan's Island or something, right? You have all these characters who are archetypes and you could watch any episode in any order. It doesn't really matter. And that was like the point of the show because you wanted your show to be picked up and syndicated to make money. And that's not the case with Buffy. Like when you meet the characters for the first time, Willow and Xander and Giles and Buffy, they're not the same at the end of the season. And then at the end of season two and the end of season three and season four, all of them change and evolve and become different people. And who Buffy is at the end of the series is like radically different than who she was at the beginning. And that's not typical for television and um, could only be done with the serialized storytelling that they did. And is something that makes the show so much more complicated and interesting. One of the things that Lonnie Dienrich always talked about with regard to Joss Whedon, he's not afraid of consequences, mm-hmm. right? Like everything that happens in Buffy, well, maybe not everything, <laughs> almost everything that happens in Buffy has real consequences for those characters. That's what makes the storytelling so powerful, is that if something happens in one episode, it matters, and you feel the effects of that in everything that comes afterward. Ugh, you feel the effects. You feel the effects. Which she rams <laughs> that sword into Angel. You feel it. Yeah. Yep. Consequences, man. So one of the things that I've really appreciated 
listening to the Buffery and the Vampire Slayer podcast that's hosted by Kristen Russo and Jenny Owens Young, two queer lesbian people who are married to each other, is listening to the sort of queer take on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm. Um, Because I know Buffy is really embraced by that community. Like they play reruns on the Logo TV channel and the relationship between Willow and Tara was one of the first depictions of a lesbian romantic relationship on mainstream TV as just like a normal romantic uh, relationship. And I think that was a really important message for a lot of people to get in the early 2000s. Oh, yeah, because I think any time that you had lesbians in a storyline on television, it tended to be really salacious or it was very male gaze. Yeah. Which I feel like does get addressed in Buffy, but like in a way that's like, isn't that stupid and gross? Like in the um, in Xander's dream. Yeah. And I think, too, it's interesting hearing all of the sort of behind the scenes stories about how much. Joss had to fight the network to even be able to include what he did, which by today's standards looks super tame. You know, (laughs) they weren't allowed to kiss. They had to do all of this sort of like metaphorical magic mojo stuff. If I remember correctly, the first episode where Willow and Tara kiss is actually in the context of something else that's uh, completely unrelated and traumatic that's going on. And if I recall correctly, Joss was saying that he basically snuck that kiss in there. And because it wasn't the focus of the episode, he was able to sort of get it past standards and practices in a way that he might not have been able to otherwise, which is just insane. Yeah, there was no issue with any other characters kissing, but because it's two girls, it's like scandalous. It's it's such garbage. Yeah, and I've also found it really interesting uh, to hear them talk about the coming out metaphor that we really get in season two, where um, Buffy's slayer identity is compared to coming out with a sexual identity. I've heard a lot of straight people talk about that metaphor as maybe a little heavy-handed or it kind of falls flat or feels imperfect. And so I just found it so interesting to hear a really full-throated defense of that by someone who has a queer identity and is saying like, yes, I love this. Like, I relate to this so much. And who literally wrote the book on it. <laughs> yeah, and who, yeah, and who literally wrote the book on it for parents, how, yeah. to, how to deal with help it. their children. Yeah coming out. There's so much there, there, um, and I'm probably not the right person to talk about it, but if you are interested in that, you should check out Buffering the Vampire Slayer. One of the things that I do really love about season four, despite the fact that the big bad storyline is less than spectacular (laughs) in a lot of ways, I think Buffy is one of the few shows that started out as a high school show very grounded in high school and was able to successfully transition to the adult world beyond that. And say what you will about the faults of season four, I think season four accomplished that and it accomplished it well. 
it's kind of like an impossible, like, I can't imagine somebody comes to you and says like, okay, write this, <laughs> get them from A to B, like make that happen. I'd be like, nope, nope, go, go ask somebody else. I don't know, man. Like, I think they did as good a job as you could possibly do, you know, given what that story was. And that to make that choice is... You know, like I said before, is the way that they arc the characters and they're not satisfied to just do the same thing over and over to transition them out of high school and not to do the saved by the bell thing where it's just like, nope, they're in high school forever. They're just in school. The college years are the same as the high school years. I mean, it's just all the same thing, whatever. They really move them into an adult sphere in a way that changes what the show is, but remains true to its spirit. Yeah. And I appreciate too the, the choice to not have Xander go to college, Mm -hmm. right? Like, Buffy has a lot of issues with sort of depictions of class and race in some ways, but, you know, Xander is always shown as coming from a much more, like, lower middle class family versus the upper middle class upbringing of Willow and Buffy. And it makes sense, you know, that he wouldn't have the support from his family to go to college or the expectation that he would go to college or the money saved up to be able to pay for college, and sort of that tension that it introduces into their social group between those who who are having this college experience, which is really like a privilege, and Xander, who doesn't get that. So before we wrap up this section of the podcast, I wanted to just talk a little bit about this fun thing that was going around our community So at Agent Austin 09 on Twitter made a comment about how there's a Buffy episode for basically any life situation. And then a bunch of people jumped in and used the hashtag Buffy Life Lessons to sort of like give their favorite examples for like, oh, you know, you're having roommate troubles, watch Living Conditions, or like (laughs) pondering what career choice to choose, watch What's My Line Part 1 and 2. Uh, when you want to forget something, watch Tabula Rasa. Um, <laughs> so wishing you could be perfect at everything, superstar. So we don't want to go through the whole list because Lord knows this podcast is long enough already, but we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Um, and you can feel free to send us your other favorite Buffy Life Lessons or on Twitter using the hashtag Buffy Life Lessons. It was a lot of fun. It's really cool. If you're like a Buffy nerd, it's great. So before we move on to the spoilery section of the podcast, um, we wanted to play our listener contributions that are spoiler free so that if there are those of you who are deciding to stop before you listen to the second half, so you can hear all of the wonderful things that people had to say. Hello, Alan and Anya. This is Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media and host of the Still Pretty YouTube show and podcast about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I am so excited that you're launching Hallowed Ground Storycast with Buffy because it is one of the most important literary texts of our time. And thank you so much for inviting me to tell you about why Buffy is so important to me. There are a lot of reasons why Buffy is important. It's one of the early shows that valued the vision of a showrunner, creator, writer, producer, and it demonstrated why placing a high value on the storytelling in television is so important. It ushered in a golden age of television. Without Buffy, there would be no Lost, no Mad Men, no Breaking Bad. 
It's a feminist text, and while it doesn't always succeed in its feminism, when it fails, it fails in an interesting way that creates a great space for debate and discussion. It works deeply with theme and metaphor, and it was never afraid to take itself seriously, even as the show was called Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which does not sound like a serious thing. I love all of those things, but what I love most about Buffy is that it evolves. Every season is different. It addresses different themes and attitudes. It pushes its characters forward instead of keeping them in a comfortable box where nothing ever changes. It taught me what a game changer was, that moment when a story changes significantly, shifting into high gear and going down a new, uncharted path. When working creatively with a series, it's easy to keep things the same, keep them safe, give the people what they want. Buffy doesn't do that. Buffy takes risks, it covers new territory, it swings for the fences, and sure, sometimes it misses, but most of the time, it hits a home run. That kind of courage in storytelling does not happen very often, and when it does, it's magical. I've learned a lot from Buffy. I've learned about structure, the importance of consequence in storytelling, and how wonderful it can be to mix humor with tragedy, the way life mixes humor with tragedy every day. But the best lesson Buffy taught me is about snobbery. When Buffy first started to air, I was fresh out of film school and I thought, oh please, Buffy the Vampire Slayer? As if. And I didn't watch it, despite friends I trusted telling me that I should. It wasn't until a year or so after the show ended that I finally got the DVDs from Netflix and gave it a fair shot. I ran through the whole show as fast as Netflix could ship me the DVDs, and the experience was almost spiritual. I had just published my first novel and I was hungry to learn about story. I've since watched Buffy another seven, eight, ten times. I don't know. I've lost count. But every time I go into an episode, I gain something new from it. From every single episode, every single time. That's a rare gift. Buffy taught me to love what you love, to find the value in every story, and to never turn my nose up at something just because of a title or a book cover or a genre. Because of this experience, I've been able to engage wholeheartedly with unexpected narratives, and become what I am today, a story expert, which is the best job in the world. I wish you guys luck with the new podcast, and I can't wait to hear your thoughts on this amazing, important work of true literature. Good luck, and have fun. We also got a recording from at Dr. Kelly Jones on Twitter, who's a host of the Big Strong Yes podcast, but she forgot to introduce herself, so I'm doing it for her. One of the big ideas that we can learn from Buffy the Vampire Slayer is that we all gain power by questioning the status quo and by challenging our assumptions and our search for truth. In the show, the world building is flexible and there are times when the characters have to completely revisit reality, sometimes in the most literal sense. Vampires are demons, except sometimes they have souls. There can be only one slayer, except sometimes there are others. Darkness is evil and irredeemable, except when someone fights for and earns redemption. Adults are wiser than teenagers, except when they aren't. Love can lead to destruction, but love can also save the world. At its core, Buffy the Vampire Slayer is a show about courage, and it weaves a magical narrative through seven seasons of horror, heartbreak, humor, and hope. I first heard about Buffy as an undergraduate and immediately dismissed it as an Anne Rice-flavored 90210 wannabe. I had just had a baby, I had a degree to finish, and I felt completely disconnected from my own youth. So watching a show about a teenage vampire slayer did not sound like fun to me. So Buffy also taught me a powerful lesson about being open to the premise of a story 
and not judging the idea without actually reading the work. (laughs) And it is with great humility that I now say it is my favorite television show of all time. I saw a couple episodes here and there, but didn't really watch it in an appreciative way until about 2007. Jennifer Cruzy, a brilliant writer whose work and mind I greatly admire, wrote a blog post about love in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Her post made me really curious. I was getting ready to start graduate school and knew there would be no television in my life for a long time. So I bought a used box set DVD of Buffy from eBay and binged the whole series during the summer before class started. It was love at first sight, and my appreciation of the show has deepened to a place of reverence with study and many, many, many rewatchings. Does your heart tell you that you're capable of more, that you're able to stand up, that the established rules should be different, that you should embrace your power and dance your dance, and the hell with anyone who seeks to hurt or diminish you? Are you ready to be strong? Do you like wit and brilliance mixed in with your fight scenes? Do you believe in magic and love and courage and friendship and redemption? If so, there is no better celebration of strength than the feat of story that is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. At AdrianAustin09 on Twitter wrote in to say, I love Buffy the Vampire Slayer because it introduced me to a strong female role model. It has also served as a source of comfort and motivation throughout my adult life. Julia wrote in to say, We started watching Buffy in November of 2011. By we, I mean me, my husband, and my two-month-old daughter. I was a first-time mom, struggling with a baby who wasn't great at eating or sleeping. Honestly, Buffy got me through that time. I was so unsure of myself, so worried I was doing everything wrong. Sitting on our old couch watching Buffy kick butt got me through it. Every year, we commemorate that original watching by celebrating Buffvember. Starting on Halloween, We watched the whole series during the month of November. We also consume a ridiculous amount of pomegranates. I think it's the red juice that's particularly vampirish. It's harder now that my daughter is almost six and can't watch along most episodes, but it has become a really important family tradition for me and my husband. The kids will be celebrating Buffvember along with us in a few years. At other underscore girl on Twitter, who's the host of Famished and Feasting and Lay Back and Think of England, and who's the co-host of Wonking Out and The Detective, The Doctor, and The Woman, wrote in to say, Every LGBT plus person has a coming out story. Some are negative and some are positive. As a bisexual, I have mine. And while Buffy the Vampire Slayer isn't directly linked to my coming out, it is a huge part of the foundation of it. My dad is not the most open-minded person. When I was excited about Star Wars and the Force, I was told I needed to focus more on God. I wasn't allowed to read Harry Potter until I was a teenager, and dear old dad went to jail, yay, because it was about wizards and magic. I discovered Buffy the Vampire Slayer as a teenager through my older cousin, but my dad tried to cut me off from that as well, saying that I would become a lesbian because of Willow. I thought that was stupid at the time and watched Buffy in secret, but I guess that made me pay attention to Willow more as I grew up. I saw so much of myself in Willow, being a shy, awkward bookworm myself. But her relationship with Tara was special to me because it was treated so normally. I had only met like two gay kids in my school, so between them and Willow and Jack from Dawson's Creek, I discovered that being LGBT plus wasn't this terrible thing that my dad would have me believe. As I grew older and discovered fandom and slash fiction, a whole new world opened up to me. And again, in this world, being gay or lesbian or bisexual or whatever wasn't treated as something negative. Buffy the Vampire Slayer is not a perfect story, but that doesn't mean it isn't a great story. 
No story is perfect, but if something makes a lasting impact on you, that should be celebrated. There are so many reasons to celebrate Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but for me, it showed a shy, awkward bookworm that she could be that and so much more while being in love with a woman and that it was perfectly okay. Thank you, Joss, Allison, and Amber for showing me that. To be continued. Hallowed Ground Storycast is a Hallowed Ground media production and is produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial share-alike license. Grrr. Arg.